Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, a podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective, patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Natasha Washington, president and founder of ATW Health Solutions and sponsor for the Patient Partner Innovation Community. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com. tuning in to Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. I am your host, Desiree Collins Bradley, and we are excited to have our special guest, Alexis Snyder, joining us. Alexis, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Alexis, you know, we met through PPIC, and we've been actually, you know, having some conversations, and we had quite a bit in common, so I feel like I've gotten to know you pretty well, but our listeners may not know you, so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell our listeners who is Alexis? Sure. Well, I am Alexis Snyder. I am a patient family advisor and an engagement specialist. I reside in the Boston area. I'm originally from New York. Um, I work with a number of different healthcare systems, organizations, policymakers, and researchers to provide perspectives of patients and families to the planning and development of their policies and programs and research that affect the care um, received by patients and families, and especially those, um, as you know, with medical complexity and often rare disease. So really the advocacy work goes hand in hand with the engagement piece where I focus on patient-centered care and stakeholder engagement um, and advise on best practices and strategies for authentic engagement to assure that that patient family and voice is always present and well represented. And that's pretty much what I do. Oh, well, you know, it's always wonderful to have conversations with my fellow patient family advisors. So I'm excited to kind of dive into it, but me as well. Yeah. One of the things I think that we had in common was we were, we are caregivers for our daughters. Yes. Your daughter's, is a, is a little bit older than mine. Mine is 12 and, oh my goodness, going on 25. <laughs> but yeah, sassy as ever. But it, you know, before I had her, Alexis, I'll be totally honest with you and the listeners too. I was green as grass to engagement. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that that was a thing and healthcare quality improvement. I just thought you go to the doctor and that's what, you did. I, it was, you know, the patients really didn't give much input. I had no clue what all this was until mm-hmm. I had her. And then I started realizing like, okay, 
you know, things need to change around here. Mm-hmm. So, so could you tell me a little bit about, you know, your daughter's journey and you, you as a caregiver and how has that inspired you in your advocacy work? Sure. So, and I, yeah, I hear you clearly on that. You were thrust right into it full, full speed ahead, right? Um, as any, as any parent or caregiver um, with yeah. a child with, you know, a rare disease and or complex needs. Um, but before coming a, a, a caregiver to my child, who now is an adolescent, she's 17 and rapidly approaching 18, which I can't even believe I'm saying out loud. I am not ready. She's right. You know, she's going to be a senior in high school this year. She's quickly approaching young adulthood. Um, I mean, I'm ready, but I'm not ready. I don't want to be ready, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, but I've always been, even before she was born, I've always been somewhat of a natural caretaker, so to speak, um, and stepping in to be the voice um, of either for a parent or a grandparent or a friend dealing with medical issues um, and the encounters that they had been having with the healthcare system. Um, and then my professional background before she was born um, is also in the health and human services field. And so I've worked in day programs and community residences and long-term and transitional care facilities with roles that included work in like ethics and patient quality and safety and serving as a patient rights officer. So I was already familiar with that, but not on a personal level. You know, that was that was a somewhat personal with the friend and family piece, but nowhere near the level after, you know, my daughter came along. Yeah. Um, right. So and always being a voice for others, you never stop and think, just like you said before you had your daughter, you were green as grass and never sat and thought, oh, gee, you know, this might happen one day and I may need to do this. Yeah. So, you know, never thinking that one day I'd be that voice for my or need to be that voice for my child um, and really step it up. Um, and having adopted her at four days old, we were given, you know, pretty much a clean bill of health. So we were told. And at around three and a half, four months, she started having issues um, at first with feeding and digesting and not something so much uncommon in the beginning that we knew there was too much more going on. Um, and l- later on, other like mystery pieces that were physicians um, were having a hard time kind of together and figuring out what was happening. So missing milestones such as sitting and walking, talking. Um, mm-hmm. And so living, she lives with chronic complex medical conditions, you know, her whole life now, of which she receives care across four hospital systems and about averages about 11 specialty providers. So between the little bit of my own medical issues and family members, which is nothing compared to my daughter's level of care, right? Uh But all of that combined uh, to say that we've had our fair share of health system encounters and often struggles is an understatement, of course. Uh Um, So my past professional history, coupled with the personal experience um, Uh and being able to recognize the numerous flaws in our healthcare system from that personal side, you know, was was very different. And to go through those struggles and to see other folks go through those struggles, you know, I, I clearly recognized a need to have a bigger voice than I already had in the systems. And one that was taking into account the community around me as a whole and being able to speak not for my just for myself, but for others who maybe couldn't speak up for themselves, especially those in underserved areas, um, and hopefully find a way to make things better. 
because if you don't speak up and get involved and make your voice heard, you can't start to make change for yourself, let Uh alone anybody else. So my journey, having all said all that, really led to taking a step from the professional side and I was, I would say, I guess on a hiatus from that when my daughter came along um, and in a different career path and then came back to it because of this person, you know, my personal experience with her, um, starting with joining a local, you know, patient family advisory council at my local children's oh. hospital. Um, and one partnership led to the next partnership, which led to the next partnership. And so basically that's what really um, you know, fueled everything for my patient advocacy, you know, through the journey of being a caregiver to a child and now adolescent with chronic multiple conditions. Yeah. It, you know, you touched on something I think is a really strong point. Well, several, but one that kind of stuck out to me is this whole point about the underserved populations and bringing in diversity. You know, I know a lot of times, you know, I attend different meetings, whether it's um, national organizations or even local organizations, healthcare organizations here in Houston. Um, a lot of times the people sitting at the table at these at the meetings don't necessarily represent the patients that the population mm-hmm. serves. You know, I tell yes. people all the time, and I remember we had a really good conversation about this. A lot of times, you know, volunteering, being an advocate can be a privilege as such. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you're right. You know, they can't afford to do. So, you know, I want to kind of talk about bringing in, you know, why is it so important to have diverse patient perspectives represented into this work? And what are some of the things that you've seen to kind of either increase it or some challenges or just some insights around that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit it right on the head. You know, it's hard enough to engage with patients and for patients and caregivers to have a seat at that table. And often, like you said, you look around the room and not all the right people are there representing the right perspectives. Um, You know, medicine, it it cannot be and it should not be a one size fits all model. And we Mm. need to take into account the diversity of, of patients and be more patient centered, meaning taking in account of what the patient and the family as well, if they're involved in the care, Mm -hmm. um, the individual needs and preferences um, and beliefs, because Mm -hmm. we're all different and we don't Mm -hmm. all think the same and we all have very different belief systems and what might feel right for one person doesn't work right for another when you're making healthcare decisions. Um, And, you know, we have to ask the right person at the right time You know, I often give the example of um, a research study um, focusing on, let's say, uh, the dental health needs of kids that come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and are really struggling with getting the dental care that they need. Uh, uh, And a a study looking for advisement and bringing patient advisors in to engage on the study. Well, Uh if you bring in a bunch of, um, you know, young uh, or older adults that don't have children or have grown children and never experienced this and, Mm -hmm. you know, are, are more well off than some of those that are socially disadvantaged, Mm -hmm. they're not going to serve your study very well, are they? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and and this is the challenge, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head that 
we need to have, this is one of the big reasons why I need to have the right people at the right time. If you don't include the diverse perspectives, you can't possibly hear Mm-hmm. What what that patient and the value of what they have to say and take it in to make the process improvements for that population. So you need to have the right people at the table. But when you talk about the challenges in that, you're right. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not it just base very basic um, engagement strategies that most of the time people don't put in place. Right. Mm-hmm. So. So to begin with, people, they're not always empowered. Patients are not always empowered to even speak up. Like you said, you never knew before your daughter yeah. that you could even have a voice. Patients have a voice in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So until we first empower people to realize that they have a voice and mm-hmm. what they have to say is important and is valuable in the change, we mm-hmm. can't start making change at all. And then that we lead to coming in, bringing the right person. Right. But those challenges come with being able to take off time from work unless you're offering, you know, meeting times at night, mm-hmm. offering, ch- offering child care, perhaps uh, compensating folks for uh, parking and gas and what have you, um, you know, really doing everything you can to get people at the table. And even if they're literally not at the table, providing other ways, being able to call in or if someone can't come to a meeting, you go to them, you get their opinion in another place where you can meet with them. Go into the community, you know, think outside the box. You don't have to bring everybody into your organization, your hospital, right? Go out, use your local YMCA, use your local community center, go where the people are that you're (laughs) looking for, right? And make make it easy. Yep. And then, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, don't exploit them. So now that you have this valuable voice, Mm -hmm. it's worth something. And people don't have the time to walk away from the way that they normally make income or need to worry about paying for childcare Mm -hmm. and not not be um, compensated for being involved and being engaged. And you, you know, know and that, that, that right there, um, and I'll just say from personal experience, I was at a, a conference and as, and it was all around family center. And I was in a session about this actual topic, compensation, and they were talking about different, different advisory councils like around the country and what they were doing to compensate the members. So there were some that were on one side of the spectrum that, oh, no, we don't, you know, we don't do that, which the organization that I'm affiliated with does not do it, do it either. And then there was an organization there that compensated their members. And I want to say, I want to say it was like 80 bucks a visit, I mean, a actual meeting, and it's to cover like a childcare expense, gas parking, what Mm -hmm. have And they were literally organization right down the street from us so when mm-hmm. I, I had a long conversation with them afterwards I'm like how did you get this done and I've been kind of asking for this when I got back to my home organization and I said hey you know our competition down the street <laughs> xyz and I think they were right on the cusp right so initially it was oh no we don't do that 
then I kept bringing it up. Well, you know, so-and-so, because, you know, competition will kind of bend their ear. And then COVID hit and everything was kind of put on hold. But I think it's really important because it sends a message. Because I'll say this, when I got the pushback to say, oh, no, we don't do this, it really made me feel like, okay, well, the work that I'm doing here isn't as valuable and that this other organization values their patient and family advisors enough to give them this little bit of compensation. So I think that right there, it, mm-hmm. it kind of rubbed me. And, and I didn't even realize it rubbed me the wrong way until I really sat back and thought about it. And I mm-hmm. like, kind of stung me a little bit. Like, I'm not as valuable as I'm the only one in the room that's not paid. Right. That's right. And and there and of course there's a balance. There's always a need for volunteer work, and there should be. And you know, don't get me wrong. Patients, caregivers, other stakeholders also look to you know be altruistic and give back to their community. But there's only but there's only so much and so often. Without at the very least, you know, offering someone lunch, giving them a parking spot if they don't have transportation, finding a way to come to them or go to them. So all of those things are so important. Um, You know, everybody's time is valuable. So, you know, there's the time aspect. And of course, anybody's, you know, a patient is the professional patient. Yeah. Right. So this is what they're they're there to speak about. And so it's valuable. So any any professional providing that experience Mm -hmm. and an organization taking it and using it for the better needs to value what that is and, and compensate for that. Absolutely. So the other thing, you know, I want to kind of ask you about that I thought was super interesting. You know, we had our our conversation and you talked about you provide consultations and advisements around patient and family engagement and best practices and strategies. So Mm -hmm. could our listeners, because I thought that that is really amazing and I couldn't wait to share what you're doing with our patient and family advisors and our patient partners in our community. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, happy to. And and everything that, you know, that I advise on and work and, and teach others about how to best engage with patients and caregivers and bring the right people to the table goes hand in hand with everything else we've already talked about up to this point, right? Getting the right people, yeah. engaging the right people, keeping the right people. Um, and how do you do that? And and we also discuss, I advise on the obstacles, right? And how to overcome some of those. Yeah. And so to really authentically and fully engage patients and families when it truly matters most, the very right off the top, you know, um, best practice that anybody can have is remembering that it's not checking a box, mm-hmm. right? We're not just, oh, you know, there's there's a law in my state that says that I have to invite patients to my hospital committee meeting to get their perspective. So let's just invite somebody and we check off that box or, you know, yeah. not, not bringing people in for really authentic engagement, right. Is one of the, the big key pieces to begin with that, that I would talk about that we're not asking patients to come in and weigh in on mundane tasks, like choosing a new paint color for a waiting room or, yeah providing feedback to the the food and the menu choices. Now, like while those are all less meaningful tasks that still serve a purpose, Uh you know, that's not fully utilizing somebody's skills and recognizing the value of the contribution of patients, right? 
And so partnering with patients to their full potential in meaningful ways allows the voices of, of those patients to have a positive effect on the care that not only they're receiving, but that others are receiving in that organization. Um, and so when I get involved with either a healthcare organization, say a patient family advisory council, or another patient advocacy group, um, or researchers, I work uh, all the time with researchers on best engagement for uh, stakeholder engagement in research and, and really talk about the difference between a participant and actually being a partner in the research. One of the pieces that I talk about when I do do workshops or I do go in and advise with people, um, I like to think of it as the three E's of engagement. So we have empower, engage, and in place. So oh. like I mentioned a little earlier, you can't, you've got to start with empowering folks. Like, you, uh -huh. like we talked about, people don't know always uh -huh. that they can have a voice system in the system. They don't know how. Some people are just physically unable to, right? They may be too tired, too stressed from their illness uh -huh. and, just, and just can't do it. And we need to empower people to come to the table and get involved, right? Once we empower people to speak up for themselves and hopefully others, if they're able to, uh -huh. we then have to make sure that we engage them well, right? So that's like the next obstacle when you talk about having the right people at the table. Well, the other obstacle that goes with that too is even if we do get the right person at the table, well, we don't always engage with them well. They, yeah. sit, they sit there and they don't know what's going on. And often they don't feel that there's a level playing field, mm -hmm. right? And you don't feel that you have this valuable voice. And why would someone listen to me with a bunch of providers or researchers or what have you, policymakers in the room? Like, like who am I, right? So that empowerment piece and then furthering that engagement goes together. Mm -hmm. And then we have, once we actually have our engagement practices in, which, you know, I, that's, I could talk to you for a whole nother hour about, right, engagement practices. Yeah. But once we have that, the third E is really in placing those plans mm -hmm. into practice and closing the loop on the engagement cycle, which often gets completely lost. Yes, it does. And if you ask somebody to come in and spend their time and then their voice goes nowhere or they never get feedback on what happened or didn't happen, it's okay if what came up in a meeting can't actually get put into place. Mm -hmm. But you also need to circle back and close mm -hmm. that loop of engagement. That's right. And thank people for mm -hmm. what they had to say and let them know we heard you but we can't do that right now or okay. we're going to do this right now instead or we may do this you know in the future and call you back but if someone just shows up at a meeting is asked for their opinions and then goes home and never hears anything about it and never sees any concrete change mm -hmm. we go right back to the beginning with unempowering people yes. because so, it don't matter at that point Exactly. You'd know, be inclined not to engage again, because I'll be honest with you, and I'm being totally transparent. I sprinkle myself. I I have done quite a bit in this engagement space, but those particular, whether it's an organization or 
um, certain meetings, if I'm there and it's just, you know, the one meeting, whatever, and I hear nothing back from them, when they have come back to me for a second round, I will decline on, or, or say, you know, this is not, you know, in my capabilities right now because I feel like you used me for the moment. Exactly. <laughs> You know, so, and, and I'm just being honest, in, in, in all honesty. So I love the three E's. I, I won't forget them. I'm going to stick them on a, a sticky note. And put, <laughs> have all these sticky notes all and, over my And I've been right there with you. I, you know, <laughs> I have walked away from, you know, commitments that I have made in years past um, where I just felt that the, my voice wasn't valued and it, it just wasn't worth my time, you know, especially if we're talking about, um, something that's, that you're volunteering to do, right? Yeah. Versus being compensated. And, you know, any volunteer, no matter what field we're talking about, you know, even outside of healthcare, mm-hmm. if, if you don't feel valued and you're not thanked and you don't receive any follow-up, mm-hmm. you feel, what, is, what, 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 is, what good is my time? Yep, you know, right. you, at the end of the day, we're all busy. No matter what anybody does for a living, whether they have a family, they don't, you work or you don't work, we all have time commitments and time constraints. And to spend your time, you know, you really need to decide at the end of the day, where is that time best spent? We all have very little free time for ourselves usually, right? So you really have to make a hard decision sometimes as to where that time is spent. And hopefully by working with healthcare systems and working with the research that engage with patient stakeholders and families, that these are the, these are the, some of the very small pieces of what I can consult with them about, about how you make improvements so that you don't lose people. And then the next time they will be there, right? Yeah. It's very basic to appreciate people in life, right? <laughs> You, if you've asked the last time, you think the last time a friend asked you for advice, or you mm-hmm. asked a friend for advice, mm-hmm. and they gave you a good piece of advice, and you go off and use it, they're likely going to come back to you at some point if you don't go back to them and say, hey, what the heck happened? How did it go? You know, they're going to be eager to know how it turned out, and then they'll be there to help you next time. But if you ask people, and you don't follow through and follow back with them, they're going to be less engaged to, to speak with you next time. That is so right. How I spend my, I would say, time dollars is is very strategic. But, you know, I, I cannot get off this podcast without you kind of telling our listeners and me too, fill me in on the update, the book. Please. <laughs> I know I sent you the message and I was like, can we talk about the book? Can we talk about the book? We can because it has finally been released. Yes. So I have been a part for a couple of years of a a book project that a good friend and colleague had reached out to me um, with an idea after the publisher had contacted her for some new ideas um, and became part of the editorial team and a co-author. I chapter chapter authored the first chapter of the book on the patient voice um the name of the book is the patient and healthcare system perspectives on high quality care um by springer uh the ebook just got released the pre-orders um is available for the print version um so very exciting It, it it goes along with everything we've already talked about 
and then some. So in my chapter, I talk about um, the history of incorporating the patient voice, you know, the development of patient family advisory councils, the authentic engagement pieces that I touched on a little bit with the three E's, empowerment, engagement, replacement, and then other pieces um, talk about patient experience and engagement, um, patient satisfaction versus patient experience and process improvement. Um, and then I wanted to point out too, because I, I don't think I ended up finished I'm answering your question about obstacles to engagement with the best practices for engagement. Um, I talk uh, in a big section in the chapter about obstacles to engagement um, and some of those other pieces that we didn't touch on um, that make it difficult for a lot of patients to, to participate. You know, I spoke about the level playing field and being in a room full of other professionals and feeling out of place. Mm -hmm. You know, easy pieces like, you know, not not using jargon at your meetings yeah. so that people understand and they don't feel that there's this secret language or, yeah. you know, someone is more important than them or more professional than them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, other other big obstacles are, you know, health literacy, you know, not everybody's health literate. Um, people not people some folks aren't even at a, a high enough reading level of general literacy let alone health literacy you know and you could be the most educated person in the world mm -hmm. and still be health illiterate that's right um you know other pieces like not understanding different cultures and if places aren't cultural competent um you can't really engage with people well unless you understand people and understand that different folks are going to have different perspectives for different reasons and I think, you know, one of the big keys that I would mention is that when it comes to, you know, any diversity, cultural competence, et cetera, is that people do things usually for a reason, mm -hmm. right? No matter what it is, whether we're talking about being a patient advisor in the healthcare system or anything in life, people are very quick to judge others in our world, right? Yeah. And usually if you take a step back, Mm -hmm. and think about it, there's usually a reason why people do the things they do. Uh, of yeah. course, for some people in life, it's not always a good reason, <laughs> but there's a reason. Yeah. But for the general greater part of society, there's usually a legitimate reason why people act the way they do. And just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's wrong. That's right. And that's another big piece that prevents people from bringing in the right folks. Yeah. That's so I, you know, I always, and I was just telling my kids this the other day, I was like, there's really, it's not, a, there's no wrong answer. It was something we were doing. And I said, you're, what, the way you're doing it is your way. The way she's doing it is her way. It's just different. It's not wrong. It's just different. And we have to understand that. And they kind of looked at me with this look like, okay, mom. But it is so, 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 so true. So can you tell us, is there like a website? Where can they get the book? Because I'm ready to, to order mine now. Yes. So I was actually going to um, say as well. So it's a perspective book um, with a number of different chapter authors. Um, so I, again, I, you know, I did the patient caregiver voice piece of the book, um, but there's also um, provider voice, nurse voice, uh, there's epidemiologists, there's patient uh, safety improvement chapters, mm -hmm. there's, um, you know, adherence chapters, insurance issues, so a little bit of everything. 
Um, mm. And so uh, it's, again, it's the patient and the a patient and healthcare system, perspectives on high quality care. Um, it's been put out by Springer. The ebook is available on Springer's website, springer.com. Um, and then the print version and the ebook are available pre-order for the print um, on Amazon um, and Barnes and Noble. I'm not sure if there's another one, but just Googling the title or going right to the Springer page will bring you to it. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I can't wait, you know, and I love that it's multi-stakeholder, so I really I can't wait to get my hands on it or get the ebook and, and read it, and, and this, this has been wonderful. Well, Alexis, I so appreciate you joining our Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast tonight. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, you guys, we cannot get away without thanking our wonderful partner and sponsor in this work, Dr. Natasha Washington at ATW Health Solutions. And as always, guys, be engaged. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com. <laughs>